welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. And once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up in a punk, may or not still be involved with punk, but I believe changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a friend of mine, someone I've played shows with, someone who I've even collaborated with. I'll talk about that in a second. But someone who fronts the incredible band Screaming Females who have a brand new album out on Don Giovanni Records, Desire Pathway, Marissa Padanoster is here today on the show, and it's a good one. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, and he will get the message to me. Thank you, Tristan Abraham, for all the hard work you do for this show. If you want to find me, I'm on Twitter or Instagram at Damien. There's an Instagram page for this podcast at Turned Out a Punk. There's a Facebook page for this podcast, uh, facebook.com slash Turned Out a Punk. I think that's how it works over there. There's a YouTube page at Turned Out a Punk, and there is a TikTok page as well. I'm making uh, these new kind of short history videos, putting one up a week using past episodes of Turn Out a Punk, and, and, you know, check them out. Maybe you'll enjoy them. If you enjoy this podcast, hopefully you'll enjoy those videos too. I think you might. Uh, if you want to support this podcast, subscribe to it, rate it on your platform that you're listening to it on, and, uh, and tell your friends about it. Let them all know that you listen to this podcast. I play in a band. We're called Fucked Up. You can find out more information over at fuckedup.cc about upcoming tours we have and shows and whatnot. We have a brand new record out on the venerable Merge Records called One Day, and I'm very excited about it, I and hopefully you enjoy it. Check it out. You don't have to pay for it. You can listen to it for free on one of those streaming services. But if you do enjoy it, then buy it, you know? That's uh, Anyway, go to fuckedup.cc. And on to today's show. As I said off the top, from the band Screaming Females, my buddy Marissa Padanaster is here today. And this is a this is a doozy of an episode. This is something I've wanted to have uh, happen for a very long time. And poor Marissa has had to bear with me on all my flakiness and, and whatnot. But now it has finally happened. And there couldn't have been a better time because we were celebrating the release of the incredible brand new Screaming Females record, as I said off the top, which is on Don Giovanni Records. It is called Desire Pathway. You can find it everywhere. I think it's available everywhere. It's certainly on all the streaming services right now. And Screaming Females are a band that I think kind of kind of says the high watermark for what DIY bands should do and how DIY bands should operate. They're a band that lives on the road that just has made a point of bringing their music to people everywhere and anywhere that they can. And a band that I think, you know, in this day and age really, well, it certainly inspires me playing in a punk band. And this is, uh, yeah, this is someone that should have been on a long time ago, but you know what? We're making it happen now. As I also said, Marissa and I have a collaboration, which will be coming out very, very soon on the new hers record, which is be will be coming out on Get Better Records, and this song is awesome. This is a doozy. Hers is an incredible group, and Marissa's vocals and my vocals. Oh, I'm very excited for you to hear this thing. 
Anyway, head over to ScreamingFemales.com for tour dates for this incredible band. If you've not seen them live, you, you got to do that. you got to go out of your way and check them out live. And pick up this record over wherever you, wherever you pick up your records. But Don Giovanni Records has put it out, so I'm sure they will have some on their site. Uh, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. But as I mentioned before, America's only rock and roll magazine, Cream, with two E's, is back. That's right, Cream is back, not just on the internet, not just with this incredible archive of every issue they ever did digitized. No, they are back in, with new issues and in physical form. That's right, 128 pages that you can kind of pour over and, and flip through forever. I, I love the feeling of magazines. You know, there's something about them, the smell of them. They, they smell amazing. And if you were a fan of the glory days of music magazines and the glory days of Cream, this a rebirth will not disappoint you. The same sort of humor and the same sort of ser- serious scholarship to music are, are all still there. And it's beautiful. There's gorgeous. And the latest issue, the spring issue, which has just dropped, they're going to be publishing for a year. And in the spring issue that's just dropped, there's stuff about botch, metal zone pedals, and incredible, beautiful photographs from a lot of unbelievable photo- photographers from all eras of punk including Martine from Crudos, and oh my gosh, this thing is fantastic. This is a magazine that you will, you know, this is not just for people like me that hold on to every zine that you come across. No, this is something that you'll put on your bookshelf and you'll go back to and use as a reference and flip through, and yeah, you know, it's it's gorgeous. So in celebration of Cream being back, and because they do support this podcast, they are offering you, dear listeners, a discount when you head over to cream.com. And that's with two E's, of course. Why wouldn't you know that? But creamwithtwoe's.com. And if you get a subscription or a fan club membership, uh, subscription is the way to go because that way you get the full physical magazine. But you can also get a fan club membership. And either way, if you enter the promo code turned out a punk, all one word, they're giving you 15% off. So why don't you do that? You know, we love magazines. If you love magazines as much as I do, even if you love them half as much as I do, you got to go out there and, and subscribe to this thing. It is fantastic. It's gorgeous. I'm, I'm still pouring through this archive. If you are uh, a fan of music scholarship and research and just nerding out, you're going to love this archive. Oh, my gosh. This thing is incredible. All right. So thank you very much to Cream for believing in this podcast. And go over to cream.com. And check this thing out. You'll dig it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Marissa Paternoster on Turned Out a Punk. Marissa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, I, I first got to start off with a earnest apology to you because you have dealt with the full level of my flakiness. And unfortunately, anyone who winds up being booked through me has to deal with years of flakiness so i apologize out of the gate for this uh it's totally fine i was just like that that man has a child i was like that seems like it's a lot of work (laughs) now there's three and it's uh multiples it's yeah and it's just uh Anyway, it is a lot of criticism. As I said, I get criticized for lunch, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I never do anything right. But the quality of your food is subpar to them. I don't know. I think I'm pretty good at cooking. 
I, I, mm -hmm. I, I put work in, you know, I, I constantly study. I think that's the only thing I really apply myself to in life. Interesting. Have you taken them to dine out or are they more fond of other Definitely. people's fare? Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. They, they enjoy a restaurant. Like they're like their mom and their dad in that way. <laughs> so they're into the finer things. <laughs> yeah. They're the finer things. They, they, yeah. they are into a lifestyle that, uh, a, a band cannot afford. <laughs> yeah. They want some Michelin star rated food. <laughs> they want, they want dad to be a SoundCloud rapper money. And I, oh. I don't have that, you know? Well, so. who doesn't want their dad to be a SoundCloud rapper? I know. I know. But we, we are not talking about my kids. We're here to talk about you. <laughs> and, Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. I'll slip them back into the conversation. They All always right, find cool. a way of creeping in there. It's like therapy for me, this whole thing. <laughs> uh, but I got to start this off versus the way they all start off, which is how did you get in a punk or the first time you ever came across it? Well, um, how did I get in a punk? My story is probably really similar to a lot of people's stories who are in their mid thirties or later uh, or older rather as uh, that Nirvana was how I got in a punk. <laughs> um, so in the nineties, my dad was, and is does still actively kind of listen to like contemporary rock radio. And obviously in the nineties, that was very much on the radio. So I think, I don't know if you had this as a child, but we had like this uh, CD world, like catalog where you could get like 10 discs for the price of, one or whatever columbia house so, right or something yeah columbia yeah. house that's what it was called and so he must have gotten Nevermind amongst like probably like a couple steely dan discs and or and maybe like a, a poco cd or something <laughs> um and uh he just played it in the house all the time and like those songs are undeniable uh, no matter what you're you know more inclined to historically enjoy i think growing up in elizabeth new jersey um, most of my peers were just really into hip hop. Hot 97 is like kind of the, the guiding star when it comes to like what, what's cool to listen to or what's at least popular to listen to. Mm -hmm. um, it's like hip hop R&B station in New York. So I grew up around like, what was it? Like the Puff Daddy, like DMX, like end of Biggie's kind of reign. Yeah, well, they kind of get jiggy with it kind of era of, of yeah, rap like a pop, little bit. pop hip hop. And so I was listening to a lot of that because I wanted to be cool and, you know, maybe climb the social ladder a little bit. But without all that being said, when I realized that that wasn't going to get me anywhere <laughs> and I was going to be like a nerd and a dork and a loser, I was like, you know what? I'm going to lean into that. And I was like, Nirvana's cool. I like this music now. <laughs> and it really did resonate me, with me. I mean, even as a kid who like, I probably wasn't listening to the words. I was just like, this is a catchy tune, you know, like resonated with me on like a, a visceral level. Um, once I started getting like more interested in Nirvana and like who Kurt was and what he was all about, then I looked at his infamous list, which was on the internet and very mm -hmm. probably took hours download the jpeg <laughs> on my net zero account but i saw it and i was like oh the pixies like what's that about let me hear that and so then i went on napster don't tell the feds i went on napster and i illegally downloaded <laughs> a lot of um the stuff that kurt suggested i listen to and then it kind of just like snowballed from there well it's it's interesting because like now you're gonna force me to bring my kids up again but like I, I expose my kids to all kinds of music and i've always kind of had this thought in the back of my mind like 
Nirvana's not that is it Nirvana special or is it just that we've made them into this thing and then in through playing my kids all this music what they've really taken to my youngest one my eldest one's nothing to do with any of the music i like and my middle child less so but my youngest one has taken nirvana and just to hear the way he's responded to it and just how obsessed he's become with in particular never mind there is something you're right like about those songs like they're they had like he's a once in a generation songwriter to like hear them kind of out of the context of history and just how they resonate with a kid it's like wow they 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 do have they're like you know in, in the way that i guess the beatles kind of have that effect to a lot of people yeah i mean you know when i first heard nirvana i didn't know anything about like the lore of kurt cobain he had already passed away i didn't know how he passed away i didn't know anything about his life um so i was listening pretty much like with a clean slate and i was just like well these songs are good i like mm -hmm. them so there is definitely something uniquely special about his songwriting, but talking about it now as a 36 year old who's listened to Nevermind probably thousands of times. And now that they've entered like kind of deity status, it's definitely hard to talk about it from like an objective perspective. It's mm -hmm. just like, it's Nirvana, you know, this is a band we've canonized. So, um, but with all that being said, it's like, it was cool that I had that, you know, Kurt was, just a regular punk like you and I and like kept his like little notebooks and gave me this kind of like breadcrumb trail to travel down so that I could find out about bands like like Huggy Bear or whatever you know and, like all the Kill Rock Star stuff and K Records stuff yeah no the way he rep bands it's just so key as on ramps to cool stuff like the Vaseline's like just like yeah. so much stuff that you like you'd never get exposed to in a lot of ways like especially if you're in the middle of nowhere and you just have like this Columbia house, I know you weren't in the middle of nowhere, but I mean, like if you were in the middle of nowhere, just with the Columbia house CD catalog, you could still have access to all this music through, through this kind of on-ramp. Yeah. I mean, I was like, I, I grew up really close to New York city, but it's not like as a child, I had access to New York city. Yeah. I wasn't like, it wasn't permissible for me to get on like the train and go to New York alone as like a 13 year old or whatever. So like for all like all intensive purposes i was kind of like in a little bit of a suburban wasteland like a lot of like you know middle class teens are so i just took whatever the tv and the radio gave me until i had developed a more discerning palette i guess and then what was really invaluable or an invaluable resource was the internet when before the internet was like an absolute all-encompassing monstrosity <laughs> um it actually was probably still a monstrosity, but it was harder to get on onto the monstrosity because mm -hmm. I had a 56K modem. But, <laughs> but you know, via once we got a computer, which I didn't get until high school, I was just like on it all the time. And all I did was try and find new bands. Yeah, it was a, a total game changer, like to have just that, you know, as a music fan, someone wanting to dig deep, just being able to like find out resources fine it seemed like it was actually music nerds that populated a lot of sort of the early before the as you say the, before the internet became an all-encompassing thing that were kind of populating it like it was a lot of places like where i remember pus zone where you could find every listing of everything pus had ever did or misfit central or like all these places yeah where... i i wasn't active in those circles but i was extremely active on the garbage message board <laughs> i don't know what i was talking about because I think they had only had two records out at that point. So 
I really hope that that has all been deleted. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta go the way back machine for that one. No, hell no. Uh, I think I just used my full legal name on it too because I like didn't know (laughs) I wasn't supposed to do that. (laughs) They they were the when I was a kid, uh, my brother and I and a bunch of friends went to see them at a radio station here. And they were the coolest band I've ever met. Like they, they set the tone for, I think how I think a band should treat fans to me as a kid. Like they were, and we were just fucking punishers. Like this is like first (laughs) record. I would have been 90. I would have been like 14, 15, just must've been so brutal. The questions we were asking them about like Nirvana and stuff. And yeah, yeah. But they put us on the guest list and were super cool to us and just, yeah, just unbelievably awesome people. Yeah, Screaming Females did a like a month long tour with Garbage, and I'm still friends with Shirley, and she's been one of the most like gracious, kind of, uh, you know, rocks. She's a rock star. Mm-hmm. She's mm-hmm. one of like I. It's it's really cool that I can call her a friend. That usually doesn't really happen when we go on tour with bands of of that size. Um, but yeah, they're they're really cool, and obviously also the Butch Vig. Um, connection led me towards a lot of punk stuff too because i was really into nirvana like that whole like nirvana you know led to like smashing pumpkins led to garbage which was like an active band a lot of the bands that i liked that were like these 90s like monolithic 90s bands weren't really functional anymore Mm -hmm. um so so once i learned about like butch fig and looked up stuff he recorded and blah 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 so they all kind of like were intertwined all the things I was interested in initially. Cause you're like, you know, your dad's playing Nirvana around the house. Like did, did he go to any cool shows? Was he into like cooler stuff kind of growing up rock wise? Yeah. He was like a 60, like late sixties, early seventies, like kind of New Jersey, like a New Jersey hippie, <laughs> it's like a different <laughs> brand of hippie, you know, maybe a little harder around the edges. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, he went to a bunch of shows. It's like I, I, I saw. I remember I saw Elvis Costello with him when I was a kid. But when he when he was young, I know he saw Marvin Gaye. I, I can't remember off the top of my head what else he's seen. But he'll say it like off offhand once in a while. He'll be like, "Oh yeah, I saw him in nineteen, you know, seventy one or whatever." So he was. I mean, my dad's always been like a really big music fan, um, and. He plays guitar a little bit, but he's never like been in a band or anything. He just he's just like a genuine music fan. He's always just has something on. So that's awesome. Was Elvis Costello your first show? No, my first show. My first show that was like a band that wasn't in a all ages like pay to play crappy coffee house place was Weezer. <laughs> um, I saw I, it was like the first show where like. I wanted to see the headlining band and I was like excited to see them. And I think it was the green album had just come out, which was like the first one, one of my first memories of seeing like a rock video on TV that was new was like the video for hash pipe. Um, And I was just like, this is the hardest music I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, going to growing up in New Jersey, you know, at that time in the, early aughts or whatever emo was like a really big thing and i feel like weezer was weirdly like probably because of pinkerton like accepted into the lexicon of like emo Mm -hmm. even though i wouldn't really necessarily call them an emo band but 
a lot of my friends who are also interested in like guitar driven music weren't really into the same stuff I was into, but they liked rock and roll. So we all just hung out together. So uh, because I hung out with them, I got into stuff I probably wouldn't have normally listened to, like Weezer, uh, Thursday, like Coheed and Cambria, all this kind of like stuff that's not, it, it always surprises me that I like still know every single word to the first Coheed and Cambria record. <laughs> well, that's all good. It's a wild time for uh, New Jersey music, right? Like, like, especially in retrospect, like Thursday, Coheed and Cambria, My Chemical Romance, like a lot of those bands wind up becoming you know, kind of huge rock bands now, like, like yeah, in the present I, day. I remember when I went to go see Coheed when I was like 16 or something and My Chemical Romance opened and I was like, who the hell are these jokers? Bring on Coheed. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like really frustrated that I had to sit through this other set. And I don't think I really paid any attention, but I do remember them being like, this song's called I'm Not Okay. And then like everyone just absolutely losing their minds, um, which was like a spectacle to behold as a 16 year old. I was just like, cool, chaos. <laughs> you know? So what was the first kind of punk, like all ages DIY type show that you went to? Other than I guess the pay to play coffee houses, which I guess are DIY in their own way. Someone's, someone's doing it for themselves. Yeah, those were like these crappy scams that kind of were dotted along like uh, in North Jersey. But real bands played at them sometimes. I think the first couple like punk shows that I went to um, when I was in college that felt like real punk shows <laughs> were mostly like avant-garde noise stuff where a lot of the artists were either just went by their name or like nothing at all. Um I had a friend, um, David Sutton, who goes by this. He makes he makes music still under the pseudonym uh, LXD, um, and he makes really beautiful work. Um, he was really into like uh, the avant garde, I guess, or noise music, whatever you want to call it. And so he was like the first friend I made at art school when I was going to Mason Gross at Rutgers. And so I just kind of like tagged along with him, and I saw like. Animal Collective before they put out Sung Tongs. I saw Growing, like Nautical Almanac, a bunch of like weird kind of noise stuff. And I was excited to be at those shows because I really just wanted to be a part of like the art world and whatever that came with that. But I knew like deep down, I was like, I want to hear like pop music, you know, <laughs> I want to hear like rock and roll songs. Um, so it wasn't really until I met Jarrett who plays drums and screaming females that we went to go see the Ergs, um, who were like a pop punk band, uh, from New Jersey. Oh, and yeah. that was probably what I would say is like, what was like the most kind of like transcendent sort of moment where I was like, Oh, I finally found these, these people I've been looking for. So were these uh, like kind of noise groups, were they in the same sort of circuit in terms of basement shows or are they playing more gallery spaces? Well, I don't really know. It was really like, because I also wasn't like super interested in it. I'm probably not the best person to ask that question. But like, I when we saw when I saw growing, it was in like a, a warehouse kind of like studio space. But then when I saw like nautical almanac, or like I saw, uh, I saw the body, which I is not really necessarily like a noise band. They are probably mm -hmm. more rock and roll oriented. Maybe I shouldn't cite them. I'm trying to think of some other uh, wolf eyes yeah long time ago those are all in houses 
And there was like a designated kind of like noise house in New Brunswick. You know how sometimes in neighborhoods there'll be like the hardcore house, the noise house, so the indie rock house or whatever. There was kind of like a, a house that mostly just had noise shows at it. So well, I was going to, that's something I really want to talk to you about because I think it's like, it like so much punk, so much culture in general, but like so much punk specifically and hardcore and, and DIY stuff comes out of New Jersey. And I've always kind of speculated. And I was wondering your thoughts on it. Like, is it a facet of the fact that you have a lot more houses with basements? There's a lot more space, you know, and like music, like especially rock and roll music requires space for, for practices, space to play space to do things. And obviously there's not a lot of clubs to happen, but like basements were such a huge component of, of the scene there. Yeah, I mean, definitely by virtue of just having a basement, it gives like an artist a lot more room to grow and to invite people over. Um, but uh, New Brunswick in particular was really lacking in having an all ages space for the students. And so there's a very kind of like um, transient population that's in New Brunswick because of the school. And, you know, these kids are, they're theater students, they're like art, like painting students, there are people who are studying art history that these are like creative young people who want to be able to go see bands in the evening or like go to an art show, or just gather in a way that's not just getting fucked up, you know, they're, maybe they want to get fucked up too. But I'm saying it's like, it, it doesn't, Rutgers just truly offered Greek life. That was what you could do in the yeah. evenings. Yeah. And that shit is scary for a lot of people. And it's not accessible to everybody. It's not welcoming to everybody. And the fact that it's terrible. School as massive as Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, doesn't offer any options to their students for all ages spaces besides like the like university sanctioned like student center, which is like a huge pain in the ass to book things in is egregious like i've you know screaming females has been like all over the united states and played a lot of universities and almost all of these places have some kind of like rat skeller or whatever like some space where the kids can invite bands that they like to play and it's just absurd it's ridiculous there's no reason for it and um so that's why new brunswick kids do what they do <laughs> you know um so yeah it's interesting though like in philadelphia there was like you know people have been on from philadelphia and talked about the lack of all ages spaces that there were there and the solution was once again i guess adapted to the environment where they found a bunch of venues that you could kind of pretty much use as squat venues um warehouses right like and so it's it's so interesting how like you're saying, like in the in the shadow of this university where you could kind of get away with a little bit more, where there are kids that are more interested in stuff, uh, to putting on creative spaces, having creative spaces, you do have this development of this scene where, yeah, like the New Brunswick Basement Show, like from prior to Lifetime, but obviously Lifetime canonized it with a song, but it's it's one of the most vibrant kind of DIY scenes in America. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to force a bunch of kids to live in a city that doesn't offer them a space to, to, you know, gather and enjoy music and art, then they're going to make it themselves. Um, it just, 
makes me so mad still when I think about how much money like the football program has and how much money Greek life gets and just the fact that like kids who just want to enjoy an evening like and see a rock band have to go through like you know basically like put put their house open up their home you know potentially get like noise violation tickets like I love basement shows I think they're great like I've had some of the best nights of my life there but it's just the dichotomy of how much money is at Rutgers and what they could do for their student population. It just makes me mad obvious for obvious reasons. Well, especially because they could hang their, their hat on it a little bit too, if, because it, it, it has produced so much sort of vibrant culture. Like, you know, like you're saying, like a lot of these groups that kind of come out of these basements wind up becoming very important bands, like, like legitimately important rock groups to the history of music or, or not outside of rock music too. Yeah. I mean, and I could, I could say that it seems like Rutgers could really care less. So, and well, in any like cultural institution that just like sticks its nose up at like what people are doing in their actual community, that's positive and good. It's just so dumb. <laughs> it, it feels like that's what universities are always doing though right like it feels like they're that crusty old dean character from all those 80s movies is, yeah. is based in reality it's like this just like antiquated conservatory attitude towards like higher education that's like outdated and ineffective and foolish um it's it increasingly makes me feel like college is just like a farce you know <laughs> The one thing it does train you to do is, I guess, uh, subvert authority and have to work around authority to make your own fun, which I guess prepares you for the real world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have had it any other way. Like, I loved, I loved everything that came along with DIY, and it turned me into a really capable, like, smart person, at least when it comes to running a show. And I think that if I had, like, a university holding my hand through the whole thing, I would you know, not probably be as sharp as I am when it comes to like putting on a gig, but, but still, you know, it's like, I just remember being like a freshman and just really wanting to have access to that stuff, landing at Rutgers and just being like, I hate this place, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And it, it took me, I had to work so hard to find the people that I wanted to surround myself with. And, and with that being said, I feel like that made it all the, the more rewarding when I did find them. And those people are like my family to this day. Well, speaking of subverting authority to, uh, to make fun happen, tell me about a uh, record label club. Cause I was reading in MRR that, that you had a record label club. I was not Rutgers. really a, a member of record label okay. club, but so this is, there was the a things, record label club. I should say there was, and you have to, to, to like be like an official club that's associated with Rutgers university. You had to like, have a dean vouch for you and have like a president and like fucking secretary or something. But anyway, our friends Colin and Reed uh, wanted to use Rutgers money to put out like a CD, like a compilation CD. And they did it. They did all the things that they had to do. And um, I simply just submitted two different projects of mine to the comp and, uh, but I wasn't involved in making it in any way, but that's where I met Jarrett is when we all went to like the, what student center to like meet up and get our copy of the comp is, is where I met Jarrett. So what did the comp, it was a CD comp. Yeah, it was a really, it was, it was professionally printed, not, not a burnt CD, but yeah, it was a CD. Um, and 
I put my solo project on it, which was called Noun. And then I also had uh, Mike and I were in a band at the time called Surgery on TV. And I, I submitted one of our songs. So I had two two songs on it. And I, I guess Jarrett had found out that I was the singer behind both of the projects, which sounded radically different and then was interested in talking to me. So that's that's when we met. Because Noun's like obviously a, a viable, like that's that's your still you do now to this day. Yeah, I we've changed the, we've changed the name to just my name, Marissa Pattern, also okay. because at, as the internet has become more increasingly a source for finding out about stuff, we realized you cannot find Noun if you yeah. Google it, <laughs> which is you know fair is fair. I was like, all right, I don't really, I didn't really want to change it to just my name because there's so many other people who collaborate with me. But I get it. Like, it's, you can't really Google now. It made stuff hard to find. So I wanted people to find stuff. But yeah, I was going to ask you what the difference was. That, that answer is that. Nothing. Yeah. So was, that's the answer. Was the stuff you did on that comp, is that kind of where the stuff you did later on was like? Or is it completely different at that point? The stuff that was on the comp was actually... <laughs> so when I graduated from high school, there was a math teacher who... Uh, since I had graduated, he had deemed it permissible for me to come see his studio, which was in Montclair, New Jersey. It was very close to where I grew up. And they had a real studio. Um, and two of his friends, these guys named Joe and Steve, who are still kicking, doing stuff, much older than me. I'm sure at the time I thought they were like 40, but they were probably like 23. <laughs> <laughs> um, they played on the tracks. Um, and because I had, I had I had given my math teacher demos that I had done on like my dad's laptop. And he, he just was uh, excited that I was really showing like a re real keen interest in music and songwriting. And so he was like, well, I have a studio, you know, like let's get good recordings for you. And it was really sweet of him. And so we recorded like three or four songs. Um, it was the first, my first studio experience and uh, they sounded pretty good. So I, I put one on the comp. There's something about having that like really cool teacher in school who like gets it or is into cool stuff, you know, like <laughs> makes it. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, well, he, I can see why this is powerful. I mean, he was, if it wasn't for Mr. Siliberto, who was, he was actually never my math teacher, but I went to a Catholic school, so we didn't have a music program um, at all. No music, zero. Um, but does God he, not believe in music? No, I don't think he I guess does, choir, actually. right? I guess. <laughs> yeah, that happened during Christmas. They would sing some shit. I don't know. I wasn't paying attention. But um Mr. C was nice enough to to be the head of music club, which I uh, was my favorite time of the week. It was Tuesday afternoon and we would just hang out and like jam because Mr. C really loved fish and ween and anything in that world whatever and i hated it so much and we fought <laughs> we fought like actually fought i was just like why won't you let us play this pavement song i hate you and he would just be like we are gonna play box of rain and if you know you don't like it leave <laughs> um but with that being said even though i hated fish and the grateful dead and stuff and i'm still not a fan but i appreciate what they do it taught me how to play music with other people and mm. jam, which is like, uh, and Mike as well, who was also someone coming to music club because we went to high school together. And that's, I mean, I can't thank Mr. C enough for forcing me to play 
chalk dust torture or whatever <laughs> the fish song was called <laughs> you know it really like it taught me how to listen be an active listener while I play and improvise and do all this stuff that I totally wouldn't have done otherwise did you ever have to go and see him Oh, hell no. He's invited me. And I'm just like, I'm always like, dude, you know, I cannot do that. I can't do that. Yeah. I, 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 I want to go for the drug parking lot. And then I, I think I'd want to go home and listen to something I, else. But No, I don't even want to do that part. Like the whole thing. I, it's just not attractive to me, but I totally, totally understand why people dig it and more power to them. I, I also, now I know uh, more about Ween and I've learned that Dean Ween put out a tape comp that featured New Jersey tough guy legends, Social Decay, and John Worcester's first band, Psychotic Norman. Makes sense. Yeah. So, so that Ween, Ween is kind of like grandfathered. Ween kind of has a pavement vibe at some points. Yeah. Ween definitely had some like more rock like stuff. They were more adjacent to like the stuff I was interested in, but they were so goofy. Yeah. And it was the goofy, goofy thing that really like did not resonate with me. I was like, this is silly. And I'm serious because I'm 17. <laughs> <laughs> I was dead serious, you know? So where were you kind of getting into music at this point from like bands like pavement and things like that? Because like, once again, it's not really mainstream music. Um, it, it all really like, just like I said, just snowballed from like the, the list, which is just like, and you know, the K records, like Kurt's K records tattoo, kill rock stars. And then just like going on the internet and finding out that like, Oh, who were contemporaries with the pixies who were contemporaries with bikini kill who were like contemporaries with throwing muses, like mm -hmm. just kind of delving into all of that stuff. And I would just follow through and at least like try and grab one song from every band off the internet. And most of these bands, the bands that I talked about didn't exist anymore. So I was just like, Oh, punk's over. Like it's over now. And now there's like brand new and Thursday. And that's what's like, I thought that these things were finite. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand that it goes on forever until <laughs> I was, I found it, you know, or you make it. Oh, you make it correct. Yeah, I think like uh, it's. I guess right. It's post even that meet me in the bathroom, rock and rock and rolls back era. Um, yeah, like point, right? I remember that stuff happening, but um, I was too young to like enjoy it. So like another one of my first memories of seeing an active band like premiere a video is like when the Strokes had last night on TV. That was like crazy i was just like mm -hmm. look a just a regular band i was like this is kind of like the music i've been learning about but i was still too young to to go like see the yeah yeah yeahs but i had i downloaded like before the yeah yeahs put out fever to tell like i had the ep i i went online and i just was crazy about that stuff yeah it was like a moment where real bands were kind of back before it became this sort of like, I guess, like hot topic post New Jersey basement show scene. Yeah. And simultaneously, while all this stuff is happening, you better believe my ass was in hot topic. It was <laughs> definitely in hot topic. I loved hot topic. I got my distillers CD at hot topic. I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard. I got the hoodie. <laughs> I never got, we never had them in Canada. We had like a Canadian knockoff that was like all the Canadian knockoff versions of America, like a little substandard. But by the time I think Hot Topics showed up here, 
hot topics in America were kind of like going out of business. Yeah, they're few and far in between, and it's mostly like like uh, SoundCloud rappers and anime stuff, which is tight. And wrestling, um, just ne- wrestling shirts. And wrestling, and yeah. I just never know what's going on. I'm like, I'm old. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know what any of this stuff is. Um, well, now it's YouTubers. That's the uh, that's the new rock star. Yeah, it's fine with me. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the kids are always right. Kids are always right. They know. Yeah. Um, so where did you kind of go from the university uh, bands that you were doing? Like, did actually, did Surgery on TV ever play shows? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Surgery on TV played about 10 shows and we were like a group of neighborhood kids with the most disparate influences like you could possibly imagine. So Mike and I were kind of into the same stuff. We liked like Pavement and The Clash and like Brian Jonestown Massacre. And then the drummer was really into Hope's Fall, which and like Under Oath. Okay, yeah, I know. Under Oath, I definitely remember. Hope's Fall, I didn't remember for a second. Hope's Fall was one of those bands where there was a period at the beginning and a period at the end. <laughs> okay. And it was all in lowercase. And I don't know what they sounded like, but she had the hat. Um, and then we had a keyboard player who is still my very good friend, Chris Bobbins, who's a, a, an amazing pianist now. Um, but he was really into Medusky, Martin, and Wood, and like Fish, <laughs> yeah. who also went to music club religiously. And Chris Bobbins was like my, like akin to like my petulant little brother. I would like drive him to school every day and we'd get into like fights about if the replacement stink EP sucked or not. And he like would shoot staples at my head. And like one time we, Mike and I shaved all his hair off with a lady bick, like (laughs) stuff like that. We were like little rascals, you know, but so yeah, but we did play shows (laughs) together (laughs) and, uh, we were kind of a jam band, to be honest, which, I mean, makes sense. And I just wanted to be in a band, so I didn't give a shit. I was just like, yeah, hell yeah. At, at music moves. at music club, would you all bring in different records to play? And like, would you have to sit there for like a whole like, like 10 minute fish song and listen to it type thing? No, no. We would just kind of be like, so to add another layer of, of, color to how cool music club was mr c played mandolin and he absolutely ripped the mandolin but usually we would just do like improvisation exercises so he would be like i'm gonna play a a, d and a g and then like we'll go in a circle and kind of like all take a turn like taking a lead which was it's great practice like i'm i'm so grateful that i had that experience and i you know to this day i'm just like Thank God that he did that. <laughs> it's almost like a martial arts approach to learning. Yeah, it didn't have that vibe. It didn't feel like oppressive or or like he was ordering us around at all. Because I think maybe it had that cool hippie, you mm. know, we're just jamming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I guess like you're also in in that school setting it, it the school setting is repressive enough that this is like uh imagine like a a window to a different world like much like dungeons and dragons club was for me yeah they had an anime club too it was run by this like ancient religion teacher mr flannery um he called the he was so old he called the tv the devil box and he liked the anime no he okay. just i think that they were like we'll give you more money if you're in charge of anime club and he was like okay he was like the oldest man i've ever seen i wonder if he's still alive <laughs> I doubt it. I <laughs> yeah. don't think so. 
I got in trouble with him a lot in religion class, but he was in charge of anime club. I remember that. I wasn't in anime club, but the the kids who were were all my friends, obviously. That's got to be a rib from the administration. Like, yeah, let's give him anime club. <laughs> yeah, maybe they were like, we hate this guy. Yeah. <laughs> How do we make him leave? <laughs> Go die. Do anime yeah. club. <laughs> Seriously. Either that um, or he's into some serious heavy hentai vibes. It's even more disturbing no, to no, think about. No way. No way. No, definitely. <laughs> no. Well, that's why he probably thinks it's a devil box because of the terrible stuff he's watching on there. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But yeah, so he was so old. He called the TV the devil box. And uh, but yeah, it's music club was like a, a was, I was so took it so seriously. It was my favorite thing that happened all week for sure. Were you aware of like Maxwell's and kind of like the legendary New Jersey kind of indie rock stuff and garage rock stuff and all the other kind of like undercurrents that were, I guess, still happening at that point? Yeah, totally. Maxwell's was very active. Um, I. I remember wanting to go to a, a Maxwell show. I don't remember what show it was, but I was a senior in high school and, but I could, I didn't understand what, if it was all ages or 18 plus or 21 plus, And I, for some reason could not figure it out. I remember being on the computer with the aforementioned Chris Bobbins and we were trying to figure it out and then being like, how will we get there? Like, how are we going to pay for this ticket? Like, can we go? I think we like called Maxwell's and we were like, hi can we come and they were just like why are these children calling us like we just didn't get it so it wasn't really until college that mike and i started just going to maxwell's and we saw like i saw the we saw the dirt bombs a lot we saw the detroit cobras a lot we saw brian jones on massacre there i saw the muff slash last they played i think it was the last maxwell's show that wasn't the feelies um we saw them there so i've seen i saw the undertones there even though i don't even know who was in the undertones but I saw them. Yeah, some lineup <laughs> of the undertones. Yeah, yeah, I saw some iteration of the undertones. Um, and so, yeah, and then all the shows were all ages, which I learned later. Um, and um, we played there a lot in Screaming Females, and it was really heartbreaking when, I mean, it's still there, but they don't really have, like, yeah, it's different now. rock shows, yeah. Yeah. And it's that, you know, Maxwell's was a, a victim of gentrification. Literally, I think they had to stop having shows because there's nowhere to park. <laughs> it was it was a Which nightmare to park. It was a nightmare to park when even we played there. It oh, was, no, it was like, a nightmare. Yeah, it's 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 weird how, you know, we're getting to a point where you can't really do basement shows anymore. You can't do this thing anymore. You can't do that. There's no place to have shows like it. it, it really does feel like we're going to hit an extinction point just because there's going to be no space to make this culture or to figure this culture out when you're a kid. Yeah. I, I try not to like think that way because I feel like the kids are always going to figure it out. And I'm always just like, maybe I just feel like it's lacking because I'm not part of that community anymore. Cause I'm older. And so I'm not, you know, like I have, I would have no qualms with attending a basement show, but I'm certainly not in it. I'm not yeah. in the thick of it. Like I was when I was young. So I'm always just like, you know, I'm sure there's still cool stuff going on. The truth of the matter is, and I have to be honest with myself, I just don't know about it. Yeah. Because I'm not like living in a house with 20 other people anymore. You well, know. Well, yeah, because I think that's the thing is the eventually. Thing. Well, sorry, I mean, cut you off. No, you get it. I, I think that's the thing is you eventually hit this point where you have to give up the zeitgeist to the next generation. That's your right. That's why it's carried on. And that's why it's always going to be fresh because there's like a new group of kids that are going to come in, come in and figure it out. 
I just think that being said, like, you know, you look at like back in the seventies and you like, you just walk down the street in, in Manhattan and you're like, oh, I'm going to go rent this apartment for $4 a month. Yeah. And then I'm going to have a practice space. It's going to be $2 a month and I'm going to have a band. And now, and then like, by the time we were doing it, it was harder. And I can only imagine now how difficult it is. Yeah. I mean, certainly they're dealing with a different landscape in terms of like how much things cost. Um, but I, I try and stay like cup half full and just be like, they're going to find a workaround. They're going to figure out how to do it. Like, and I, and I, you know, really certainly hope that that's true. And I'm not just being like naively positive, but. Well, I think you're, you're right. Cause you do see it now with sort of like these, these international scenes that spring up or vapor wave or something like that, where it's, it doesn't necessarily need a physical location because it has space on in a virtual location where people can exactly. kind of meet up and share. Yeah. Like they will cultivate community that's interesting and like probably going to like change the cultural landscape, even if it's not in a physical space. And I think that obviously we have really strong, a strong connection and affinity for physical space. Cause that's where we had really formative experiences, but it might just be different for younger people. And like, I want to be open to learning about that, even if it doesn't, if you, even if it's hard for me to understand mm -hmm. as a 36 year old, you know, <laughs> no, that's, that, you're right. That's like the, the best approach to have to it because you're not going to stop it. <laughs> like, yeah. So, and it's probably really cool too. Yeah. Yeah, like, exactly. And yeah. it makes sense for, it makes sense for people like in the same way that I'm sure a basement show wouldn't have made sense to the people that played in the Ramones or, or Blondie, you know, yeah, but it like, made sense to us. Jared and I just did a panel with Lenny Kay, who's in Patty Smith's band, yeah, and yeah. he's a New Brunswick guy too. And he was like, oh yeah, we played house shows at the frats. And in my mind, I was like, that's terrifying. But that's where rock and roll, rock and roll was like, that's, that was its place at the time. And there's that legendary, I think it's some university in New Jersey, punk frat that did like a Fugazi show and did yeah, like. I, I went to a show there once. It's at Rutgers. I forget what it's called though. It's, I mean, it's obviously like Theta Bot, Theta Bot, like Fire. I don't know. I went there once. I, it was like not really, I feel like it was more like open to queerness when I was there. There were like, mm. it was, uh, and not like as punk as it was queer. Does that make sense? Okay, they didn't really yeah. have a lot of shows, but they had a lot of like queer dance nights and stuff like that, which was very radical at the time for mm -hmm. a frat, certainly. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's still way, yeah. yeah, obviously way cooler than any, any frats that I've seen portrayed on TV or anything. Yeah, I don't think I've I mean, ever I, been to a frat for real. No, I've never gone in any single one except that one. And then there was a punk frat um, that I think that was associated with Penn at in philadelphia whose name i also cannot remember but i'm assuming that you probably have heard of it no, I, I i think i've heard of it and i was going to say i think there's also one in columbus ohio because i think i saw asset play on their front lawn one time <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was it, cool it, to see asset in the like the light of day <laughs> no it was that night they refused to oh, play okay. on this they were playing columbus fest and they said the stage was too high and refused to play on the stage. And so the frat house down the street was like, you guys can play on our front lawn. That's sick. <laughs> it was, it was pretty sick to be honest. It yeah. was definitely, it was a, uh, yeah, fantastic, uh, a fantastic experience, but 
there's a moment that kind of happens when I guess screaming females gets going. There's also, I guess Tyson Dronicus starts getting going around then, or at least I'm hearing about these bands around the same time. And, and Vivian girls, we, we kind of knew beforehand just because of Katie, but they're kind of getting going. Like it felt like there was like this New Jersey DIY, I, I like rock and roll Renaissance, like where it wasn't necessarily like screamo emo hardcore type iteration of punk. It was like a rock and roll iteration of punk that was back. Yeah. I think like, uh, I, I, we played Vivian Girls for show and they were kind of like obviously a New York, New Brunswick hybrid, but they oh. used to practice across the street from my girlfriend at the time's house. And I remember she brought home their demo and was like, you have to hear this. It sounds like black tambourine or whatever. It's so awesome. And we were all kind of like art school kids. So we weren't really like gravitating towards things that might've been like conventionally called like hardcore punk or whatever things that maybe have like more of a history having basement shows and like underground kind of sub like cultures we were just really into like riot girl and like like queer core stuff and so the vivian girls i was just like whoa this is the coolest thing i've ever heard and then that first album was like massive yeah it was like an explosion um and so there was, yeah, there were the Vivian girls. Um, Titus Andronicus, I didn't really hear of until like Screaming Females was touring more, like full time. Like I had already graduated from college, but they were from or, around our area. I'm sure that they played New Brunswick and I just maybe wasn't wasn't in town at that point anymore. Because um, I know they had that record on Trouble Man Unlimited. I thought it was around 2005, 2004. Yeah, is that wrong. the like Civil War? No, the one before that record? one, they did like, I remember I first heard about him because they, Mike Simonetti <laughs> used to call into the best show and tell Tom Sharpling he wanted him to play him all the time. Right. And it was like a running thing on there. And I'm like, what a weird name for a band. Like it was always something yeah. that, that stuck with me. And Sophisticated. Yeah, it was definitely. <laughs> I was like, I'm like, what's the deal? And it's a guy from Trouble Man Unlimited calling too on the best show. So I, yeah. that's like a lot of my passion for New Jersey came from like listening to that you know show obviously yeah i mean titus is the real deal and they still tour a lot the singer patrick texted me the other day because he was just like where can we play in wyoming <laughs> and i was just like he's, i was like he's a he's the real deal that's a yeah. road dog right there <laughs> yeah. yeah and that's the thing it's like uh you can always tell bands that kind of come from a diy thing because they're ready to kind of like try weird things or try something yeah. interesting and and just make sure uh you know, as long as you can get it vetted through someone else that's done it. <laughs> yeah. I would say the, the biggest influence on, on us, like in really embracing DIY and being like, we don't, we can do this ourselves. We really actually don't need anyone's help. And it's easier if we just do it ourselves. Um, was the ergs mm -hmm. were like, and this band called Hunchback, which I don't know if you've ever heard of. Is that Mike they Hunchback's were, band? Yeah. Catalano. I, yeah. 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 He, I know him obviously from uh, other projects he played and, and checked with the Hunchbacks before. Yeah. 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 Hunchback was like kind of sounded like Killdozer, also like not like your conventional kind of like fast punk band, but they had fast, heavy music. But like Killdozer, like kind of influenced, like Jesus Lizard influenced um, band that I was like absolutely obsessed with. And they played a lot too. But those two bands did national tours and they were like, this is how you do it. And I, Jarrett went and hung out with, um, I think it was Jeff. Uh, it was probably, it was either Jeff or Joe from 
lyrics it doesn't matter but they were basically like took out a map probably a physical map because it was still you know 2004 and was like here are places that you may have never considered playing but will you'll have a great show like Carbondale, Illinois, like Bloomington, Indiana. These are places that you have to go. Play. I don't know how they figured it out. By doing <laughs> it, right? Like they, that's that how was, we figured it out. Yeah. Because yeah. they, uh, you're right. They're a band that I don't think gets enough credit for being that kind of like band that would play anywhere and everywhere and, and were the first band to play a lot of places. Or they come up on the show like a lot of times as being a band that came through town or someone did their show and it changed them and stuff. Like it's a, yeah. such an were, important band. They're a good fucking band. You know, like when they played, they ripped, like they brought it. So it wasn't, it, was, it wasn't like forgettable. They weren't joking around, you know? Yeah. yeah. And a band that also did it for the love of it. Like there's no, you know, there, it never felt like they were trying to work an agenda or no, play they the were Warp like tour or some shit. Three like true, true music nerds who just, wanted for some reason you connected to the bluetooth <laughs> um they were just like big big music nerds who uh they just i don't know i feel like we shared a, a lot of commonality and that that was the goal was just like to play good sets for whoever would come and see us and you know, accrue positive and fun experiences and see new places and make new friends, which is really the best part about being in a band. Yeah. You know, I was re reading this old Maxim Rock and Roll today, and uh, there's this part in it where you're talking about how you hate being home and just how you want to be on tour. And every day you wake up at home, you're just like, God, why can't I be on tour again? And like, I, I hate bringing up the pandemic and stuff like that, because I feel like, you know, we all lived it and it was such a nightmare. But I don't know. I felt like my, I was, I took everything about being in a band for granted so much um, that the pandemic was a real wake up call for me in terms of why I love it and why it was important to find a way to do it. But it just seems like you always appreciated it. And, and even from the get go, like this Max Rock and Roll interview is like, fuck, 15 years old, 16 years old at this point. Really? Maybe I, it's less than that, maybe, but, but it's yeah, old. Yeah, it's probably less than that. I feel like at first, the the rigors of touring like i grew up an only child we didn't travel a lot like i had very little kind of like out of new jersey school you know home experiences and so tour really changed my life and made me of i think a really a way better version of myself like um braver and like just less shy and more like amicable blah 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 but when this is probably over 10 years ago I got really sick and we had to take like a basically like this indefinite kind of break we weren't sure what was going on with me and I had a lot of like chronic pain that was so bad I and I like to think that I have a pretty high pain tolerance but it was so bad I was just like I can't do tour the way that we tour like and we certainly don't have the resources to do it any other way so during that time it was like seven months or so i was just like i will do anything to be back on tour like this sucks i like that's this is the thing i want to do there's no question in my mind i want to be in a band i want to travel i want to see stuff i want to see as much as i can of the world before i'm not here anymore and i want to play music with my friends and 
that really solidified I feel like my appreciation for being in a band when I you know you don't know what you got till it's gone or whatever so the the pandemic was kind of just a reprise of that kind of anxiety where I was just like when will I get my thing back and is it gonna come back and you know all of my formative experiences as a young person are totally based around screaming females touring and playing music I my identity is just like completely ingrained in this thing and maybe that's not the healthiest thing in the world but I kind of can't I can I can work on it you know and not have all my eggs in this basket but it's never going to stop being important to me so like the pandemic was hard if yeah I mean it was devastating I think your relationship to it is healthier than mine because for me it's <laughs> it, well for me I I I and even now I find it really hard to find my legs on tour. Like I find like, it's just that, you know, that roller coaster every day, uh, just takes me out of myself. Like, you know, waiting for the high of getting on stage and then that crash trying to get to sleep afterwards. And I, I think if you can find a Zen in that, I don't know, probably total misuse of the word Zen, but if you can find like a peace in that kind of life, I think that shows that you've got a really healthy relationship with it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's my safe space. Like, you know, being in a van with Mike and Jarrett is when I feel like I am, I'm safe. And I think there are things about my childhood and my life before screaming females where I just didn't ever feel safe and having screaming females in my life, like changed all that. And so when it got taken away from me, I just completely panicked and, um, I, even though getting sick and like having almost a year off from screaming females was like devastating and scary. Unfortunately, it did prepare me a little bit for the pandemic, um, which has, you know, now it's kind of like we're all suffering the consequences of having been locked away for two years. Yeah. All of us appreciating it too much while we were locked away and now all of us being on the road at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> getting out there get back we should, out there well this is like i think this is why we need a union so we could have Just no shit you know, <laughs> you know like this would be like hey you know what maybe we should stagger the the release of everyone's record and just, yeah and like provide people with just like baseline resources so that they don't have to like kill themselves to survive yeah yeah that would be nice yeah well i'm sure a maybe, lot of workers could say that <laughs> i know we gotta get we gotta get some big names on to the union side you know, we got to get all all the former punks that are in these bands now. We got to go to the Foo Fighters, Skrillex used to be in what that Screamo band. From first to last, Come yeah, on, buddy, get with yeah. it. <laughs> I, I did, I did, uh, I did van security for him one night. He was a nice guy. I'm sure Skrillex is pretty tight. Seemed very nice, very I friendly. Hung out with him. Yeah, I think I think actually Kickball Katie hung out with Skrillex. That would be good. when yeah. when he played. I can uh, see that. You should ask her about it. Yeah, I definitely. <laughs> <laughs> kickball kate i've got so many random photos on that come up on, like when i'm looking through old photos to do something with for the band i'll be like oh my god kickball katie was on that show i totally forgot kickball katie was there yeah, like, you'd be like hey there's a lady who hung out with skrillex <laughs> like, that's what i'm gonna think from now on now you're I'm yeah. never gonna get that thought on my head <laughs> oh, what about uh ted leo and was that someone who was an uh, influence on you i know you've toured with them kind of extensively yeah, I mean, I remember going to see Ted at Irving Plaza with Mike when Shake the Sheets came out. I don't know what year that was, but I was pretty freaking young. I think I was in college already. Maybe it was the summer before college. doesn't matter. But I was like, this guy's the most famous guy in the whole wide world. 
because I was like sold out Irving Plaza doesn't get bigger than this and um so when he asked us to go on tour I was like at that point like a monolithic fan I was just like I love this dude like every record is so good and when I met him I was just like oh my god like I can't believe it I'm gonna like see Ted Leo and then he just like came up and started talking to me and I was like I'm gonna crap in my pants I was just like this man is like a god um and then it you know after (laughs) and even that first night I think we played in Dallas and the show was fine but we didn't have a place to stay and we weren't at a a point in our career where we could even get like a cheap motel and so I was asking everyone I was just like as the promoter and the person working at the door I was like does anyone just have like a floor and eventually everyone left the room except Ted. And he was just like, just take our room, one of our rooms, and I'll just sleep on the floor. And I was just like, this guy is hard, goes hard as fuck. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I feel like it was just that initial show of like, like unity and solidarity as like a traveling group of musicians where I was just immediately like drawn to him as not only like, someone to look up to as a working musician but like a friend and yeah from from there we did a couple tours with ted and if i'm around his neck of the woods we usually hang out just like talk to each other (laughs) i love i love the idea of like a a, you know like the working band like this idea that there's like and i think it's kind of new that there's this there's this kind of post i guess nirvana alternative explosion class of bands where it's not like you're trying to be a rock star. Like prior to that, it felt like a lot of being in a band was trying to get to the next plateau, whatever that is through major label support or, Oh shit, your record tanked. Well, I guess that's it for the band, but sort of this idea of like being in a band where this is your career. And and this has obviously always been around for musicians and other genres, but like the idea of like in a post punk kind of realm punk world, that this is like the, uh, like a new type of band. I think you're right. Ted is like a, very early kind of inspiration in that kind of world to me yeah for sure i mean like that kind of work ethic that you know ted leo and the pharmacist kind of demonstrated to us and then like we were very lucky to like record and become friends with steve albini and his work ethic um the way he like is just you know he said it he was just like i'm not afraid to work um and i'm good at what i do and it's this is my career like it doesn't i'm not he's not these people aren't necessarily looking to become like rick rubin or like what's like uh ed sheeran or whatever you know they're not trying necessarily to fill stadiums although i'm sure no one would mind if that happened I'm, i don't know can't speak for them but like what we have always looked for is sustainability because we want to continue making good records together we want to like uh maintain our friendships and i i feel like a lot of that stuff isn't really valued when it comes to artists especially female artists it's like once you're not cute or sexy or young all of a sudden you aren't making your best work and Mm -hmm. that's just not true i feel like just in this it in the sense that when you practice anything for a prolonged period of time, you probably will get better at it. And I feel like musicians are often thrown away when they aren't like young and hot anymore. Um, And that stinks. (laughs) I think especially probably in rock and roll, right? Because it's like, it is such a youth hyper youth focused 
music in the beginning. Yeah. I mean, you know, as it should be, I feel like a lot of, you know, we should always trust the kids and that they know what's cool and new and, and be interested in what they're doing. But also, you know, as a, as a young person, I was really interested in what like my elders were doing mm-hmm. and really appreciated their output when they were my age and looked forward to them putting out more stuff. So I had like a very different perspective on aging and like, I feel like the music that I listen to really reflects that. Like I appreciate artists at all different stages in their career, but as I've grown older and like as a, as a woman in rock music, I definitely kind of feel like an antique, even though I'm not, you know, I'm 36. I'm not like old in the grand scheme of things, but like, it's weird how often I call myself old. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I call myself old with the, the kids for different reasons, but that's because they hate all well, music. My son told me that so, music was for old people. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Totally. I'm like, all music? <laughs> like, your video games have music too, buddy. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's a, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it is a, uh, it is like a hyper youth focused. And it's interesting because like Thomas Mars from Phoenix was on the show and he was saying that they're finally at the age where they're accepted now in France because in France, they didn't accept them until they got old. And he was like, in France, yeah. no one really likes you till you're old. Yeah. To, to reframe what I said, I think it is a, a very American thing. Canadian too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think youth is revered and in, in probably youth and beauty are revered in, across the globe. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's that's what everybody is always trying to hold on to. And I think, you know, it would be nice if we had a broader, like more appreciation for artists who have endured and are honing their craft and like have experiences to share with us. Um, so that's my two cents on that. <laughs> Especially as songwriters, right? Cause you're right. Like that's a skill that comes with time, you know, like any skill, like, especially like looking at the world and taking it in and putting out your voice. I mean, I would say so. I, I feel like so often in the world of like punk and rock and roll, people are always like their earliest stuff is the best stuff, <laughs> which might be true for a lot of bands, but I know that my earliest stuff is not my best <laughs> yeah, work. Same. And that a lot of the songs <laughs> that I wrote are incredibly embarrassing and super weird. And I had no idea what I was doing. And I, every time like I put out something new, I'm like, and I think this is how you ought to feel. I'm like, this is the best thing that I've done so far because I'm getting better at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which is another thing that I just feel like doesn't really get talked about. Yeah. Like it's, it's interesting. Like, I think especially with like harsh vocals and yelling vocals, like it is something that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily assume comes with, with time and stuff, but watching John Brandon sing now versus when he was singing in negative approach versus when he was singing in laughing hyenas like my god it's amazing to see the control he has over this instrument that he's kind of crafted for all these years and like yeah totally like yeah like it's like as much as i love these old songs and they're like perfect it's to see as as an artist develops where they take their instrument versus just these individual songs that's special yeah totally i think that appreciating artists in in different iterations throughout their career is like really important. And um, I mean, that's, you know, what we are trying to do is like create like a a sustainable, special kind of like narrative with Screaming Females where we put out good records that we're proud of 
that are all special and unique in their own way. Yeah, I think that's like it changes the way you look at all art. Like I even look at the prequels from Star Wars differently. Now, like, <laughs> oh, you know, like, well, you know, I obviously hated them when they came yeah. out. And yeah. but now in terms of like where George Lucas was at, that he was willing to completely tank this franchise to follow through on this artistic vision like though that's they're more they're like a a more auteur statement than those early films were yeah i mean the 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 dips and failures in in your like artistic career arc are just as important to your story as your successes <laughs> yeah yeah like yeah. the idea that you can like i like the idea that you can inspire people with both ways the sword the sword swings you know like uh yeah like people could hate your music so much they get inspired to do it like yeah it's like how the last thing lou reed ever did was lulu yeah yeah (laughs) which which i was like i remember i remember at the time because it was just like really cool to hate on it bringing it up to dale from the melvins like oh yeah what do you think that lulu record and uh he's like i think it's amazing i think it's really cool a lot of people like it yeah Yeah. (laughs) he's like i don't want to listen to it but i think it's cool that these people would feel that they need to put this out in the world and they would make this statement like that's interesting and it's like yeah "Yeah, i guess there is there is no bad art there's like art that you know is hateful which is bad but there's not bad art because it's something i don't like yes i think that you know bigoted art hateful or anything that's like flirting with fascism is obviously bad (laughs) but when it comes to like people's personal preference and like what resonates with them and what makes them feel connected to the piece is that's that's their own special thing it's totally different for everybody so yeah yeah even lulu even even the prequels of star wars (laughs) but you know that there's one person out there lulu is their favorite record ever i wonder is there one yes you think i would love to i would love to talk to that person about that record because like i you know and i don't hate it as much as some people but like i don't know my kids though do like the prequels more than the originals of the star wars so that's really weird i think they like cgi animation yeah i think they like the cool monsters and and stuff probably i mean i was stoked on that when those came out and then i was like wow jabba the hut looks really bad (laughs) which is crazy because i was like 12 that i even had like that discerning of a palette i was like ew the puppets are better. <laughs> I, I heard it on, like, I think Gilbert Gottfried's podcast, the idea that, like, uh, practical effects uh, look fake but feel real, and CGI looks real but feels fake. And I'm like, right. yeah, that really captures it. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> you know, that's the, that's like, you know, and I guess it goes for DIY too, you know, like, you can tell when it's fake, even when it's real. Totally. I think there <laughs> are certainly some bands who, like, tried to, dip their toe in a DIY, but had different intentions about what they wanted to get out of it. And maybe those weren't necessarily the best intentions. And that always kind of shines through, I think, in the end. Did like, it's interesting to look at how DIY culture and, you know, was like in the Brooklyn waterfront and kind of like the last vestige of sort of like a, a, an urban space where you could still find cheap rent for these venues and just seeing that in real time in such short time spring up and then get paved under uh literally by the vice building so kind of like in a way that the culture that it it helped bring in a, in a yeah in a i mean losing death by audio is truly heartbreaking and i think i cried which is wild 
because I'm not that much of a crier. But I remember we would stand outside of DBA all the time and watch the condos go up and be like, when is this going to be over? Certainly this can't last for much longer. And it persevered for a really long time. And the, I saw so many like amazing bands there and we had so many amazing shows there. And then to have like a, a institution like Vice, which was doing like some fucked up, really offensive, like black market journalism stuff where they're like, look, we're revealing like the seedy underbelly of like, whatever put blank space here and then they just like come into that community and systematically destroy it so it's like the thing that they were showcasing and profiting off of they removed they took it over they decimated it and well, now it's gone came, it, it even came out of right like they were like it came out of a zine it was like people doing a zine at a, well, at a, in basement shows in ottawa yeah, Vice is Canadian. It used to be yeah. called The Voice, I believe. And yeah. then that like Nazi guy. Gab well, Gavin <laughs> and he, he was in this band Anal Chinook, and the guitar player is the guy who started Godspeed to Black Emperor. And they used to play uh shows that Sean Sean Scallon, who still does shows in Ottawa, but they yeah. would like do shows that he did. But Gavin was like an anarchist, well, quote unquote anarchist guy back then and like this. Yeah, I'm making a stinky face. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we don't even need to bring his name up. It just Yeah. Uh but there's a uh yeah, like it, it feels like that as much as there's there's almost like an eating of its own tail thing that kind of happens within this music too at a time where Yeah, I, I think that in my just this is this is my personal experience, the community that I was like hanging the people I was hanging out with at, at DBA or like around the corner or whatever, those we really hated Vice because Vice was just filled with like sexist, racist, like dumb like they were tr they were trying to like be ironic and be like make these like s sexist racist jokes jokes quote unquote jokes in their reviews section i thought that whole like thing they used to do where they would like evaluate people's outfits on the street was really like body shaming and like horrible i mean imagine being that person and opening up this magazine that's in thousands of different like coffee shops across new york and like someone's like saying horrible mean things about your body in it i was just like this magazine sucks that was gavin's like, section that was the one yeah. that gavin wrote well, there you have it <laughs> it's and it's, so yeah a well, lot of my friends were like we were not into vice at all so when they bought the building we were just like oh well that makes sense these fuckers would destroy this place that's so special to us it's weird because they were like the life cycle of of the brooklyn waterfront like when they first put their office in brooklyn in like 2000 what was it two and then till the end where the big office goes up. And now the big office, I don't think they're in the big office anymore. Yeah, I think it's gone. It's like, wow, that was like, it's such a hyper like <laughs> life cycle of a neighborhood. Yeah. And instead, it's like, you could have had this really important, persevering, like arts and cultural institution that was like beloved. Well, and I'm like, why don't, like, and I always think this with condos too, like it doesn't take that much money to soundproof and have a cultural space in your fucking building and it makes no your building shit. look so cool i knew somebody who was like working for, like was getting like a big job at vice when they bought that building who was also into punk and i was like why doesn't vice just like give dba money soundproof it let them do what they still do if you care about art and music like you say you do <laughs> 
but you don't. That's the thing. They don't. They care about money. That's what they care about. It would have been, and like, I just think that every time a condo goes up, it's like, and you're like, you, you don't think people are going to have kids in this building and they're, you're going to eventually want these kids to have a cultural outlet where they could go and practice and do this stuff. Like you look at Sweden in the nineties when they had all those government funded jam spaces and recording places and, and instruments and gear and the amount of music from the cardigans to like Entomb to Millencolin yeah. that came out of that. Well, this all circles back to like talking about Rutgers, you know, like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm places that have these like infinite budgets just just sending all the money to their one the the, the thing that will turn the most profit which is like you can't take it with you no <laughs> you know <laughs> no and, it, and it's short-term profit too because like we're saying like the stuff we're talking about has like this is stuff that resonates culturally for for years afterwards like the frat houses that put on lenny k and patty smith back in the day it's like god this like where would music be without patty smith i don't know rock music i mean <laughs> like there's probably other music that would have just fine yeah. but rock music would not have been good <laughs> the other genres would have did been okay they've been okay <laughs> <laughs> well i can't i don't want to keep you all day because it is the holiday time and uh but anytime you want to come back on this thing please know the door is always open thank you so much sweetheart it was wonderful to talk to you and see you again Thank you, Marissa, for coming on the show. And you're right there. Marissa will be back at some point in the future, and it will not take this long. I promise. I will be. I'll be a little. I'm. I'm working on it. You know. Or I'll let Tristan book it next time. That's actually what happened this time. It all came together because I just was like, Tristan, Jesus, take the wheel, vibes. You gotta. You gotta save me on this situation because I am terrible at organizing booking this podcast. To anyone that that's still waiting for their episode that I've been that's been dealing with me booking it. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying. I'm really trying. All right. Speaking of episodes that are, that are booked, recorded in the can and coming to you, we're going to keep it kind of New Jersey, Philly area for this next episode. Santi gold is going to be on the next episode of turned out of punk. That is right. Music icon. There's no other way to put it. Santi gold will be here to talk about, her relationship to punk rock, it's an, it's an awesome conversation. I'm really excited for you to hear this thing. And that'll be coming up to you in a, in a, in a few days. Well, that's it for this episode. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives and issues of Indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights. And stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths or different nationalities or different religions because we're not talking about political issues here. These are just basic human rights issues. People deserve to live free from hate and violence. So if there's organizations that are doing positive things in this world that you believe in, get involved. Donate your time, your money, your energy, what, what, whatever you can, you know, just whatever you can, you can do. Cause doing something's better than doing nothing. Right. Speaking of doing something, start a band, start a podcast, start a fanzine, just, just make something in punk is a culture that thrives on people's participation in it. So if you're watching from the sidelines, just do something and you're never too old to start, you know, start, start doing something. Uh, speaking of starting to do something, sign those organ donor cards. Cause, because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't, you don't need them anymore. There's literally dead weight. They're just taking up dead weight. So yeah, it's morbid. 
Try meditation. I didn't believe in it. I know people did. I know people have been doing it for thousands of years. It took me, you know, however many years before I started doing it. And my gosh, these people that have been doing it for thousands of years were right. It works for me. Maybe it'll work for you. Who knows? I think that's it. Thank you. Oh, also, uh, you know, this is a pro-choice podcast, so we need to make sure that people are allowed to do what they want to do with the reproductive systems. And uh, that's full stop. Anyway, that's it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I'll see you on the next episode.